0: Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Thursday, May 9th, 2019. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes says it's time to break up Facebook. More developer details from I.O. Uber has an arbitration problem. Shoe tech is real. And get ready for 64 megapixel smartphone cameras. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. So, in what Kara Swisher this morning called a well-orchestrated rollout, Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes today penned a bombshell op-ed in the New York Times, as well as granting interviews on NPR, all with one message. According to Hughes, Facebook needs to be broken up. Hughes, of course, was one of the kids in that Harvard dorm room. Where Facebook was founded, he was basically a key driver in Facebook's earliest products and de facto Facebook spokesperson for the early years of the company. Hughes has not been with Facebook since 2007, but to say he is a true blue Facebook OG would be putting it mildly. Let me just quote from the op-ed itself. Mark's influence is staggering, far beyond that of anyone else in the private sector or in government. He controls three core communications platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, that billions of people use every day. Facebook's board works more like an advisory committee than an overseer because Mark controls around 60% of the voting shares. Mark alone can decide how to configure Facebook's algorithms to determine what people see in their news feeds, what privacy settings they can use, and even which messages get delivered. He sets the rules for how to distinguish violent and incendiary speech from the merely offensive, and he can choose to shut down a competitor by acquiring, blocking, or copying it. Mark is a good, kind person... But I'm angry that his focus on growth led him to sacrifice security and civility for clicks. I'm disappointed in myself and the early Facebook team for not thinking more about how the newsfeed algorithm could change our culture, influence elections, and empower nationalist leaders. And I'm worried that Mark has surrounded himself with a team that reinforces his beliefs instead of challenging them. end, quote. Hughes then goes on to outline some pretty specific policy suggestions arguing largely that Facebook, quote, has created a leviathan that crowds out entrepreneurship and restricts consumer choice, end quote. Actually, I'm going to let you hear what Hughes thinks should be done in his own words from a New York Times video. Listen, it'd be great if Mark could fix this himself, but this, ironically, is a problem he cannot solve. We need the government to intervene with two steps. First, the Facebook empire needs to be broken up. America's regulated corporate empires before, and we can do it again. This isn't unprecedented. And surprisingly, it often boosts the value of these companies in the long run. Federal Trade Commission can force Facebook to unwind its acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram. Then we'll see real competition around social media and digital messaging. Breaking up Facebook isn't a punishment for its economic success. It's a way to guarantee that other new companies can compete. We also need a new government agency to protect Americans from the overreach of Facebook and other companies like it. Think about it. We don't trust airlines or pharmaceutical companies to regulate themselves. And we shouldn't trust social media companies either. I'll just close here with one bit of commentary. Owen Williams tweeted, quote, It makes me uncomfortable that all these dudes grow a conscience after getting dirty rich. But Facebook's co-founder coming out and saying that the company should be broken up feels like it might be a turning point, end quote. Some more nuggets now from the Google I.O. developer sessions. Google Search is now getting something called Mini Apps, a new capability for Google Search and Assistant that delivers interactive and dynamically updated content in search results. An early adopter program launched yesterday, and limited developer invitations go out in June to help Google test the suitability of the new feature. What might the feature enable? "Quote: When many apps roll out to Search and Google Assistant, they'll appear on queries that include the name of the app provider, such as brand name machine learning courses, and they'll take and respond to input in line. They'll dynamically update to show live content as it becomes available, and they'll adapt to smart displays like Google's Home Hub, automatically optimized for both screen size and touch. For instance, a mini-app from an online course provider like Coursera might surface popular courses on the first page and fill the subsequent pages with class descriptions and enrollment deadlines. It might even let users enroll in classes directly from the mini-app or show a full carousel of offerings directly in search." End quote. We are a long way away from a clean, white, uncluttered page with nothing more than blue links on it, people. Also, Google has added a pending transactions payment option to Play Store, letting users pay for apps at a retail store by showing a payment code on their device. What's this now? Well, not everybody can buy apps or in-game purchases on their devices, especially if they don't have access to things like credit cards, especially in emerging markets. And even carrier billing doesn't fill in all the cracks. So for users who still rely mostly on cash, quoting TechCrunch, The option gives an Android user the ability to choose an alternative payment method at checkout when paying for an application or in-app purchase. Instead of charging an attached credit card, for instance, the user can instead opt to receive a payment code which they can use to pay for their purchase using cash at a nearby store. Once at the store, the user shows the payment code to the cashier and pays. Within 10 minutes after completing the transaction, the user will receive their purchase and an email with their proof of payment. The fine print notes that this can take up to 48 hours at times, however, end quote. I joked about sneaker tech a few months ago, but it's kind of really not a joke. Nike's new app, Nike Fit, will use AR to help buyers find the right sneaker fit, and the app is expected to come to the U.S. in July, quoting Bloomberg. The app could address a financial pain for Nike, which gets over half a million complaints a year about fit. Industry-wide, the company says 27% of shoes bought online are returned for that reason. Plus, people wearing the wrong size Nikes might look elsewhere for their next pair. Nike members spend three times more at Nike.com than guests do, and Nike's new flagship stores, along with some of its new products, are built to be experienced with the member app. Nike said early testing in stores shows the fit technology has been, quote, one of the strongest levers we've found so far, end quote, in driving consumers to sign up, end quote. So this article sent me down two rabbit holes. Number one, yes, I know I'm late to this, but Nike has apparently a robust membership program. And also, you know those metal gadgets that you've used to measure your feet in shoe stores for years? They're made by the 92-year-old Brannock Device Company, which dominates the market for this particular tool. And it was run by its founder, Charles Brannock, until his death at the age of 93. Link in the show notes if you want to follow me down that particular entrepreneurial rabbit hole. You might have seen the ride-hailing driver strikes that rolled out across the world yesterday. They were largely intended to point out the insane income disparity wherein the founders and investors and companies like Uber and Lyft rake in billions of dollars, but the people that actually have to make these services work have to scrape by, earning tough and not exactly exorbitant hourly wages. Which, fair enough. But I also noticed that Bloomberg noticed a detail in Uber's IPO that suggests that ride-hailing company in particular might have even more problems with drivers than we previously knew. Apparently, more than 60,000 U.S. drivers have filed arbitration suits against Uber. Legal experts say it could take decades to resolve all the suits and might end up costing Uber more than $600 million, or as Bloomberg pithily titled it, death by 60,000 cuts. Quoting Bloomberg, For Uber, using legal arbitration to deal with driver compensation complaints, over anything from pay to overtime to mileage reimbursement, seemed like the smart play. It would preclude costly class-action litigation. It was private, and few drivers would go to the trouble. That may have been a miscalculation. Uber kind of picked its poison in that regard, said Nancy Kremins, general counsel at Globalization Partners in Boston, referring to the company's pursuit of arbitration over courtroom litigation. While the choice might have initially deterred lawsuits, 60,000 arbitrations is, quote, death by a 1,000 cuts, Kremen said. The volume is impossible to deal with from an administrative and legal perspective, end quote. Lots of companies prefer arbitration to settle disputes with employees because, historically, few workers actually go to the trouble of filing complaints. Not so apparently with Uber drivers, and apparently each individual case of arbitration costs as much as $20,000 just for Uber to adjudicate, and that does not include any payments or fines or fees. In theory, Uber could just blanket settle all the claims, but that would open Uber up to the possibility of paying benefits to drivers as employees, which is exactly what Uber has been trying to avoid since day one. By the way... Much more on the ultimate long-term viability of Uber's business model, or lack thereof, on one of the bonus episodes coming this weekend. A couple of odds and ends stories I've been saving all week, both about pushing the boundaries of tech. The next world's fastest supercomputer will be built by AMD and Cray for the U.S. government by 2021, the U.S. Department of Energy announced earlier this week. The machine will be called Frontier will be built for the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee and is expected to have 1.5 exaflops of processing power. More on that. Quote, When constructed, Frontier should be the most advanced example of what is known as exascale computing. This is the next generation of computing capacity in which processing power is measured in exaflops or quintillions of calculations per second. A quintillion is one with a whopping 18 zeros behind it. To give an idea of the scale of this sort of machine, AMD says Frontier will have as much processing power as the next 160 fastest supercomputers combined. It'll be able to handle an astonishing amount of data with a bandwidth 24 million times greater than the average home internet connection capable of processing 100,000 HD movies in a second. It'll also have a correspondingly huge footprint, taking up 7,300 square feet of space, roughly equivalent to two basketball courts, and containing 90 miles of cabling, end quote. And if that didn't get your nerd juices flowing, how about something a little closer to home and possibly more aspirationally attainable? 64 megapixel phone cameras are coming, quoting The Verge. Samsung has announced a new image sensor for mobile phones, with a higher resolution than anything comparable on the market. The ISOCELL Bright GW1 is a 64-megapixel sensor that uses the same pixels as Samsung's current 48-megapixel component, meaning it'll be a physically larger sensor that can capture more light overall. The Bright GW1 will produce 16-megapixel images by merging 4-megapixels into one, like how existing 48-megapixel sensors turn out 12-megapixel photos by default. Samsung's new sensor will also be able to descramble the color filter for full-resolution 64-megapixel shots in good light," end quote. 48-megapixel cameras are already available on select Samsung, Huawei, Oppo, Vivo, and Xiaomi handsets, and Samsung expects to go into mass production on these new cameras later this year, so we could see them show up, or at least teased, in the spec sheets of late 2019 smartphone announcements. Finally today, Polygon has a look at the kids who play Fortnite as so-called free or default characters, which can open them up to bullying from their peers. In short, if you can't afford to pay up for in-game skins, you run the risk of being tagged as poor or basic or worse. In other words, virtual game items as status symbols that bleed into the real world as avatars for the haves and the have-nots. Quote, as Fortnite has shifted into a hangout spot. The messiness of social hierarchies has followed. Some players make a name for themselves based on skill, and status is granted in accordance to your win rate or kill-death ratio. But Fortnite matches can only have a single winner or squad, which means that the average person can't stand out in this way. Instead, players earn prestige with other fans based on their character's look. And in the realm of Fortnite, there is nothing worse than having a standard character, otherwise known as a default. And so default has quickly become a put-down within the Fortnite community, a signal that you are a lesser player in some way. On more than one occasion, I heard the kids refer to one another as a default, a middle school teacher says, referencing things he's overheard at school. At one point, they started to use it just as a generic insult, both in and out of the classroom. The abuse goes beyond insults. Fans who play as defaults end up getting ostracized by classmates, too. Libby, a middle schooler in seventh grade, told Polygon that defaults at her school, quote, get made fun of and that mockery is compounded by the fact that these players are often on mobile platforms, which are perceived to be a worse experience. Noob is a word that comes up a lot in conversation with parents. Kids ask their parents for skins because they don't want to seem like Fortnite novices in front of other people. The label turns kids into targets, according to a parent on Twitter. Guy Dieppe, a father of an eight-year-old boy, tells Polygon that while his son asks for money for Fortnite cosmetics to avoid the stigma of a default, what he heard between the lines was more heartbreaking than that. Quote, to translate him, he's actually saying, I need this skin because of my lack of self-esteem and confidence, Dieppe says. Many kids end up spending money in a free game just to keep up with the in-crowd, end quote. Sad, but not unexpected, right? Kids are geniuses at making other people feel bad. As a lot of people tweeted, have you ever seen that episode, the Fubu episode of Atlanta? This is like that. As Jack Appleby tweeted though, quote, "Good piece on a new form of cyberbullying. Hope uneducated parents don't overreact though. Fortnite's so big that typical societal issues inherently enter the community." That doesn't mean Fortnite is toxic. It means a percentage of kids are jerks, like always, end quote. That's all for today. I've been Brian McCullough. Follow me on Twitter at BrianMCC. Check out the show subreddit at r And subscribe to the ad-free feed in the last link in the show notes. Talk to you tomorrow.